0: If you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter six and we'll begin in verse 13 this morning while you're opening. I had the privilege this week to uh, to go to boys mission camp to spend a couple of days with our first through sixth grader, uh, first through sixth graders, and uh, it was great. I wouldn't trade uh, I wouldn't trade the time that I had to spend with them for anything. I really, truly enjoyed it. Uh, and as, as I was there at the boys' mission camp, I spent Monday and Tuesday there. I slept there Monday night. Let me just say as a sideline, I want to I wanna just let everyone know now that next year when it comes time for boys' mission camp, I will be challenging all of the fathers to take at least one night and to go and to spend time at mission camp with their sons uh, because it's truly worth it and it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to be there and to uh, interact with our children Uh, in this way and to see how the gospel can come alive in their lives so as I was there I was considering how we would approach Father's Day as a congregation today's a uh, it's a great day Father's Day I I love that uh, in our culture we celebrate Father's Day it's a time where our children uh, show an extra measure of grace toward their fathers uh, even toward their mothers on Mother's Day right and they give us gifts and uh, it's a way that they can uh, to for them to show their love to us as parents But as I prayed through the week, I I really became convicted or convinced rather that the best way for us to celebrate Father's Day today as a congregation wasn't for me to preach a message that was centered specifically around Father's Day, but to continue in our teaching from Ephesians chapter six. Uh, I had in mind the text that I was going to use to preach for Father's Day, but uh, I, I think that Ephesians chapter six is a text that we really need to give Uh, to give weight to and consideration to and apply it to our lives, not just as fathers, but as an entire congregation, as God's people. And so I really hope and pray, my prayer has been, that we would be gripped by the truth of this text from Ephesians chapter 6. You know, as a father, one of the instinctive natural tendencies that I experience with regard to my children is to protect them. Especially when I feel that they're being unjustly treated. I mean, what father worth his weight wouldn't go to bat and wouldn't protect his children or his child? And so when difficulties or trials come, we don't take flight. Instead, we take a stand, right? Instead, we fight. This is the heartbeat of the text that we're looking at this morning. As we engage in spiritual battle, when difficulties come and trials come, Paul is saying we don't take flight. Instead, we take a stand. Instead, we fight. And so, the title this morning for the message is Every Believer's Battle Fight, Not Flight. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 18a. My button's not working. I meant to mute. Sorry. <clears throat> Let's read. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let us pray. Father, as we open your word, speak to us. Give us insight to the spiritual battle that is happening around us, even now in the heavenlies. Make us keenly aware of your Holy Spirit's presence in this place this morning. And Father, I pray that you would fill us with joy, with insight, and with the truth of your word by your spirit. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Three weeks ago, we looked at Paul's exhortation to children and to parents in Ephesians chapter six, verses one through four. And in it he singled out fathers. This is because fathers play a significant role in the lives of their children. No matter what culture or what age we live in, God has designed it this way for human history, for human nature, for the course of humanity. And with the breakdown and the attacks on the biblical family structure today, I think we need to be especially attuned to the spiritual battle that's going on around, around us. And it's for that reason, fathers, that I think this teaching is all the more imperative. For our lives, especially fathers with young children in the home, but, even, but, but, but at whatever, whatever stage of life we're in as fathers, whether it be young fatherhood, early fatherhood, or whether it be grandfatherhood, I think that there is bearing for us all as believers, but not just for fathers, as believers in general, as a church body. For this teaching really is a summation of what Paul has been speaking of throughout the whole epistle of Ephesians. And so fatherhood isn't simply about insulating our children from the evils of the world. It's about equipping our children spiritually and teaching them theologically how to respond to evil in the world. And this is exactly what our text is getting at this morning. Paul addresses the heavyweight contender battling against the soul of every person here this morning, from the youngest child to the oldest senior adult. He addresses our battle against Satan and against the rulers, against the authorities in verse 12 and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so this morning, I want us to see the necessity of God's armor and putting it on. I want us to see that wearing God's armor strengthens me to stand in spiritual battle and to fight against Satan's schemes. That's the first point on your outline this morning. Wearing God's armor strengthens me to stand in spiritual battle and fight against Satan's schemes. And so as we begin this morning, I want to ask a question that we'll kind of come back to at the end, and that is for you. Believer, ask yourself, do I have a growing affection for God's word so that I'm increasingly delighting in God's word? Do I have a growing affection for God's word so that I'm increasingly delighting in God's word? I think the answer to this question can offer a true gauge of spiritual health and well-being in our lives. So I'm not just speaking to fathers. I'm speaking to all of us as believers. What do my attitudes and affections and, and choices and words and behavior say about my relationship with God? Paul gives us two commands in this text for engaging in the spiritual battle. And then he gives us these six participles that that tell us how to carry out the commands in verses 13 through 18. And so the main command that, that we see in the entire text on this battle and spiritual warfare is seen in verse 14. That command is, Stand therefore. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what I want us to see first this morning, though, is that standing power there in verse 14. Standing power begins with prayer. And we see this connected with verse 18. Now, already four times in verses 11 through 14, Paul has given us this command, this challenge to stand, to stand fast, to to withstand the enemy and the schemes of the devil, to stand against the schemes of the devil, to stand firm And in verse 14, he gives us this main command, stand there for and then in verse 18, though it's not part of the armor of God, he sums it all up with this capstone saying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so first, believers, I want you to note this, note this, church. Prayer strengthens the believer to fight and it sends our enemy in flight. Prayer strengthens the believer to fight and it sends our enemy in flight. I remember in the summer of ninety nine, being in Glorieta, New Mexico at Collegiate Week and hearing John Piper teach on spiritual warfare. And the line that rang out that I still remember today is he said, prayer is our wartime walkie talkie. This is a truth that we'll uh, we'll walk through, especially next week. But this was such a powerful and deeply challenging truth. And this morning, we need to see that Paul lists this not as part of the armor of God, but as one of the fundamental lines, or as the fundamental line of communication for the believer when we're engaged in spiritual battle. This is communication between the believer and our commander in arms. It's through prayer that we become moldable, and it's through prayer that we as believers are pliable for heeding our master's command. And it's through prayer that we become emboldened in standing against the schemes of our enemy. And so we need to see prayer as the wartime walkie talkie where we're communicating with God in the midst of the battle that we're engaged in. And so in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes this. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but But have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see praying is the climactic activity of the believers life. We need to understand there's a direct connection. Between being filled with the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18, right? Chapter 5, 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Instead, be what? Be filled with the Spirit. And we need to understand the connection between that and what he says here in chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In other words, every activity in our life is to be governed through this lens of dependence upon God. And that comes through walking by the Spirit and praying in the Spirit. The context of prayer in the believer's life is spiritual battle. When we pray, church, we're praying as Jesus taught us to pray, right? What do He say in the Gospel, Matthew 6? Thy kingdom come. The disciples ask him to teach him how to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This transcends all the daily activity in which we engage. From marriage, to parenting, to employment, to everything in between. Anytime, get this, anytime we engage God's will, Satan is in an all-out war against us. Believe it. This is the reality. If you find yourselves walking victorious in Christ, know that Satan is seeking you out. This is what Jesus told Peter. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter five eight that he roars about like a ro- ro- he roams about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour. He's an all out war against us, and so standing power begins with prayer one of my favorite stories about dependence on God in prayer it's probably one that you've heard before but I'll take the chance there were five young college students that were spending a Sunday in London and so they went to hear the famous preacher C.H. Spurgeon preach while they were waiting for the doors to open the students were greeted by a man who asked them gentlemen let me show you around would you like to see the heating plant of the church They weren't particularly interested because it was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to offend the man who had come up and greeted them. So they consented and and said, yes, we'll go. And so the young men were taken down a stairway and a door was quietly opened. And there the guide whispered, this is our heating plant. Surprised at what the students saw, they saw 700 people bowed in prayer beneath the sanctuary, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. So softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself as C.H. Spurgeon and invited the young men to join him in the auditorium upstairs. Share that to say. Is this the way we view prayer? Do we view prayer in our lives as a divine necessity? Do we view prayer in our lives in this sense as being a a wartime walkie-talkie, a straight line of communication with our Heavenly Father? Do we see prayer as a necessity in our lives? If you answer yes, let me ask you, how often then are you praying? Is it that necessary? Do you offer a prayer to God when you get up in the morning and your feet hit the ground and then you don't think again to pray before the Father until you lay your head on the pillow at night? Or maybe every now and then when we sit down to enjoy a meal, we offer a prayer. That's not the design of, this is not what, what Paul is speaking about here. Paul is speaking about the continual intercession of the Christian life. Not that we're walking around holding our hands, clasping them together, closing our eyes and and praying Uh Prayers throughout the day like this, but but that our whole life would be lived in this this understanding of, of constant communication with the Father because the Holy Spirit of God actually dwells and resides within us. And so what Paul is saying is this is a necessity. Be filled with the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication, offering this for one another. Let me ask you, if you were in the midst of a battle and the enemy's raining down fire upon you, uh, and you've got the walkie-talkie communication to the commander, aren't you going to be calling and saying, hey, send backup, I'm under fire here, right? This is the challenge of the Christian life. This This is what Paul is saying. Call for reinforcements. Strengthen the armor. Call out to God in prayer. Turn to him. Cry out to him. Because prayer strengthens us to stand and to fight the battle. We must fight, not run in flight. And when we pray, we fight and God sends our enemy in flight. That's why Paul, that's why James says in James four, seven and eight, submit yourselves into God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double minded then grieve and wail and weep over your sin and let your laughter be turned to or let your sadness then be turned into joy secondly I, I want us to see though that god equips believers with his armor this is key for us to see and to understand god equips believers with his armor not only is standing power Not only does standing power begin with prayer, but God equips believers with his armor. We see this in verse 13 and then verses 14 through 18. In verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. In verse 13, he repeats the same command that he gave us in verse 11, right? Last week we saw, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Here he says, take up the whole armor of God. Every piece of armor is needed for the believer to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He tells us the identity of this whole armor. In fact, the word he uses in the Greek text, it's the word for the complete armor of the soldier. And so he says here that putting on the armor of God, get this, it is the spiritual act of putting on the new self. This is why Ephesians chapter 6 is the capstone, the climax of all that Paul has been saying throughout the book of Ephesians. If you recall in Ephesians chapter 4, flip back to chapter 4 verses 22 through 24. Here's what Paul says about the old self and the new self. He says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, right? And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And as chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, we are newly created in Christ as God's workmanship. So believers have been given a new identity. One which cannot be undone. And this is the call, church, believer. This is the call to progressive sanctification in my life, in your life. And it demands that I perpetually put to death the old self as those things become evident and boil up to the top the closer that I grow in my faith, walk with Christ. You see, progressive sanctification means that I'm, I'm progressing In my closeness to God, and I'm being distanced from the old self. I've put on the new self. I'm a new creation in Christ. The armor of God then works in tandem with the progressive sanctification in your life, believer. John MacArthur commenting on the Western church's deficiency and weakness in spiritual battle says this. I I just want to read you about five lines, so hear what he says. It's easy for believers... Especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected to be complacent and become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and in a kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. Theirs is the victory and peace of the draft dodger or defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they're not engaged in the war thought that was an incredibly challenging statement. And as I read that, I thought, I wonder how many of us at Crosspoint this would be fitting to describe they're not interested in armor because they're not engaged in the war. Church, may this not be so for us. May this not be the statement that would characterize our spiritual life in our battle, our lack of engaging in battle. Listen, we are divinely equipped with God's power for spiritual battle. And this is the reality of every believer's life. Progressive sanctification and battle against temptation draw us ever closer to God, awakening new depths of understanding of our need for God's armor. And the stronger our resistance grows in battle against temptation, the greater the enemy's resolve grows for your defeat. And as a gospel truth, advances in our lives. Hear me out. So do the enemy's tactics and advances against us. So we're not to think of taking off this armor, just as we don't think of taking off the new self. Rather, we understand the severity of our fight. Three times in this text, hear what Paul says. Three times in this text, Paul speaks to the urgency and the all-consuming nature of this battle. Verse 13, having done all, he says then, to stand firm. Verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. Look over to chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, right, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then verse 18, and don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Chapter 5, verse 20 giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, wearing the armor of God encompasses every activity of the believer's life. You see the connection here in the text? You see what he's been been arguing for or speaking for and and challenging the church too challenging us as believers too paul calls our attention to full-time engagement in battle because all of life is a spiritual battle you know I, oftentimes we tend to think of our homes as a retreat from the battleground i mean i i go home and i watch my neighbors back into the driveway hit the button open up the fence back in, push the button again, close the fence, walk into their home and never step outside into the front yard. But I would be willing to say that this describes many people as they view their homes as a place of retreat, a place to get away from the world. But I want you to know that the home is one of the most crucial battle lines. That's why Paul takes the doctrinal and theological teaching from, uh, from, uh, from Ephesians chapter one through chapter three and makes so much application in chapter five, verses 22 through chapter six, verse nine, for the family. 5:22 through 33, right? You know this. It's marriage. Six, one through four, parenting and children. Five, six, five through nine, it, it's, it's employee and, and employer relationship, which happened in the home in this day. One writer says the armor of God is the believers lifelong companion. You see, it's our means of divine power to battle the enemy. And here's what's incredible. What's incredible is that in the Old Testament, the Messiah is prophesied as the warrior fighting on behalf of his people, and then in the New Testament, Christ steps forward, enters humanity, and he accomplishes the ultimate victory over sin and death. And then he fits the believer with his divine armor. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy in speaking of the Messiah. Isaiah 11.5 Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 59.17 He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So what is this this armor that God has equipped his children with? Well, we see it in 14 through 18. And the first one, he says, is to fasten the belt of truth. Fasten the belt of truth. This means to appropriate the truth of the gospel. It means that we stand ready for vigorous activity in battle as we buckle on this piece of divine armor. We're strengthened with the truth of the gospel as God has revealed his truth in Christ. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Here's what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. and Ephesians 4.15, which talks about how we interact and relate to one another, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so he says part of this divine armor is the buckle or the belt of truth that we put on so that we're making ourselves ready for the day of battle see, the truth of the gospel transforms our attitudes. It transforms our behavior. It transforms our our temperament because it's a a missile straight to the heart of the believer. And as a people who stand on the truth of the gospel, we live out the truth of the gospel in community. In unity of the faith. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. Read Ephesians chapter 4 again and see the unity that the church is called to. And so as a body of believers, we are called to live out this truth in community with one another. And this is part of engaging in the battle, because remember, remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities. It is against the spiritual forces of darkness and evil in the heavenly places. We cannot engage the battle for the lost world against our enemy if we're losing the battle in our relationships with brothers and sisters in the faith. So the challenge, church, is to repent. Church, we must repent. There is angst in our hearts toward one another. If we're living in such a way that we're not exercising the truth of the gospel in our daily lives, if we're living in hypocrisy in the world before other men and reflecting that upon the church. It's time to repent. Believer, we must repent of this sin. We must buckle on the belt of truth. We cannot afford in the day of battle to let truth fall. We must stand firm and live truthfully and righteously. And that's the next point of of the armor, next portion of the armor. We must be protected by the breastplate of righteousness again in verse 14 think about it what does the breastplate do it covers the vital organs of the body it protects the vital organs in battle especially in hand-to-hand combat as we saw last week this piece of armor is it's vital it's necessary and so the believer here is pictured as being armed with the righteousness of Christ And it's his righteousness that protects us from the mortal blows and arrows of our spiritual enemies. Think about Ephesians chapter five, verse one, where he says, believers, be imitators of God as beloved children, imitate God. You see, this is a call to character, to integrity of the believer. To be imitators of God. Think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 for all those who are in Christ, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the enemy comes against the believer and threatens the believer and is in hand to hand combat with the believer, know that there is no condemnation in God's presence for you, believer. The breastplate of righteousness deflects the blows and the arrows of the enemy when he assails us and comes against us. And he continued, Paul continued in Romans chapter eight to speak of how this works when he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or death or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. But just as it is written, for your sake, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more Than conquerors. For him who loved us. Listen. for This is what the breastplate of righteousness gives us. For I am sure. That neither death. Nor life. Nor angels. Nor principalities. Nor powers. Nor darkness. Nor things present. Nor things to come. Nor anything else. In all of creation. Nor height. Nor depth. Will be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. This is the believer's. Assurance of righteousness in God's presence. We are justified in Christ. And his justification produces a justified life for the believer. So that the two are woven together inextricably. And it produces in the believer a life of righteousness. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. So the breastplate of righteousness strengthens the believer to cultivate righteousness in his or her life. And get this, cultivating righteousness is the way to overcome temptation and to be victorious in the battle against the enemy. You want to win the battle? Cultivate righteousness in your life, believer. Thirdly, our feet are made ready with the gospel of peace. We see this in verse 15. We could think of these sandals that that we that we have outlined here in verse 15 as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We could think of these sandals as somewhat like cleat like sandals. They've got traction on the bottom. They would allow the soldier in battle to have grip and to stand his ground to cover cover slippery and, and, and difficult terrain in and, in a pretty quick manner. And so he says the gospel of peace is what shods our feet. Now, all of chapter two in Ephesians is devoted to the gospel of peace and the effects of the gospel of peace. And there are two sides to the gospel of peace. Number one is Jesus has given us peace with God. That's number one. He has made a way for us no longer to be at enmity with God, but to be at peace with him. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says that we were what? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We all walked. But Christ, because of his work on the cross, he has given us salvation. He died so that we might have life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 speaks of it. It's by his grace that we're saved. Not by works that we've done, but we've been called and saved so that we might now walk in these new works. And then chapter 2, verses 11 through ch- verse 22 speaks of how this new creation that we've been, we've been made into. In chapter 2, verse 10, this new creation, it now fleshes out in the second side of peace, which is peace not only with God, but now with one another. Because he's broken down this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. There's no ethnic division in the cross of Christ. There's no racism in the cross of Christ. There is one new humanity. Chapter 2, verse 15. He created us as one new humanity, as one new race. This is the creative work of God. And this is the peace-loving work of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says this is what must shod our feet. These are the shoes that we must put on. It is the gospel of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Let me ask you, do you know peace with God? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? And seen what Christ has done? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we've been saved. It's not a result of work, so no one can boast, but we've been created as this new creation. Have you come to peace with God through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, repenting of your sin, placing your faith and trust in him? Has that happened in your life, friend? Have you been born again? All that we're saying this morning must be predicated and founded upon this one truth, unless we are born again, none of this other stuff matters. It's only by the gospel of Christ. That we can be empowered in the saving work of Christ, that we can be empowered to live this faith life and to battle against the enemy. Otherwise, we're like the featherweight contender battling against the heavyweight contender, and we will never make it out of the ring. Believer, are you living out the gospel of peace, peace with one another? Fourthly, he says, to take up the shield of faith. We, we see this in verse 16. The purpose of the shield is to do what? It's to extinguish the flaming darts of the, the evil one or the arrows of the evil one. I love the imagery of this term. There are two types of shields and two words that Paul could have used to describe this shield as part of the battle armor. The first one that he could have used was a small shield about two feet in diameter. It was round. And the, 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 the soldier would carry that in the battle. But... The term that he used isn't that one. He uses the term for the bigger shield. It's about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall, about bo- almost body length. And this was a heavy shield constructed of constructed of uh, uh, double layers of wood, and it would be soaked in water and had leather wrapped around it. And here's the point of the shield. When they go in the battle, and the enemy would draw back the arrow and would let the arrow fly, and this this uh, this arrow that's dipped in pitch or tar and it's lit on fire is flying toward the uh, the, the battle line. All the soldiers would, would get down on the front line and they would stack shoulder to shoulder and put these, uh, put these big four-foot um, shields in place and then stack the other one on top and they would form this wall so that the arrows would hit and they would be deflected because these, these, these shields are covered in, uh, in leather and, and they're soaked with water and so they would even put out the arrows of the enemy. Here's the picture that Paul gives us of the battle line and of the shield of faith for the believer. And what I love about. This imagery. Is that when the enemy would send this barrage of arrows, you've got this army coming together and surrounding one another and putting up this shield of faith to protect one another so that the penetrating arrows would not so the arrows wouldn't penetrate and wound fellow soldiers. And in essence, it represents the believer coming to the church and saying, Church, raise your shield around me, brothers and sisters. Protect me, I'm weak. Reassure me of the gospel's power and of the truth. Form a wall. So that when unsought thoughts of doubt and disobedience and rebellion and lust and fear and hatred, When they come, and they will, and when they come, the shield of faith protects us. Saving faith in Christ is a shield which extinguishes the fiery arrows that Satan wants to let loose against our lives. And by faith, we flee to God our refuge. And by faith, we congregate as a body. And we come together and we strengthen one another. Listen. The shield of faith counters doubt and depression with the promises of God in Christ. And the shield of faith counters temptation and sin with the power of God in Christ. We need one another in this fight, church. You know that even the most elite soldiers need a company. We need one another. We need to have one those back. We need to hold up the shield of faith high. We need to help deflect those arrows from the enemy. Believer, you need to be. We need to swallow pride and reach out to one another. And say, hey, pray with me about this. I'm struggling. Pray for me. We can't be too prideful to do that. Finally. He says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. You know, the helmet, it protects the head. We know that. Represents God's saving power. And it's God's saving power, as we mentioned a moment ago. That's our only defense against the enemies, against the enemy. The battle for the mind is the key battleground for the believer. So the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, but the mind set on God brings life and peace. God has rescued us from the ravages of sin and death, from wrath and bondage, and he's transferred us into his kingdom where Christ is the sovereign ruler. And so the helmet of salvation gives a believer confidence in the outcome of the battle that Christ has won the decisive victory. Horatio Spafford's hymn, It is well with my soul, I think captures the thought well. After losing his son at age two, and then the following year, sending his wife and four daughters across the Atlantic Ocean, he received word once she reached the other side that their ship had collided with another, and all four daughters had perished. His wife sent him a telegram saying, Saved alone. Horatio then boarded the ship, set sail across the Atlantic, and as he passed the spot where his daughters had drowned and perished, he pinned the great words of it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O oh, my soul. Though I'm sure his soul did not feel like praising. He was praising the Lord. And Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. even so, it is well with my soul. We take up the helmet of salvation. And listen, we wield the sword of the spirit. As we wield the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. The word used here for word of God, it's rhema. It's the spoken word. It's not logos like we see in John chapter one, verse 14 or John chapter one. It's the it's the spoken word of God. This is how Jesus responded right in Matthew four. We looked at it last week when Satan comes to him in the midst of his 40 days of fasting. He responds with the spoken word of God. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it is for the believer that we should also respond with the spoken word of God when Satan buffets and comes against us. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the men that they're going to come and deliver you to the courts. But he says, when they come to deliver you over, don't be anxious. Instead, trust in God, and he's going to give you what to say in the midst of that hour, for it's not you who speak, he says, verse 20, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The sword pictured here is more like a dagger. It's this close hand-to-hand combat. It's a short sword that's used quickly and powerfully. With it, we fight back the enemy and advance against the enemy with the truth and the hope of the gospel. So I close with a question that I began in opening with. If we're going to wield the sword of the spirit, believer, do you have a growing affection for God's word so that you are increasingly delighting in God's word? The battle is real. It's serious. The spiritual battle is happening even now in all of us. And so what areas of our lives, your life, do you need to employ God's armor? Do you know peace with God through Christ? Is is the Lord the Lord of your life? Is Jesus Lord uh, Lord of your life? Is he your commander? Do you have on the helmet of salvation? Are you being attacked by the enemy and need to take up the shield of faith? Cry out to God. Cry out to the church, surround me. Are your feet covered with the gospel of peace is a belt of truth girded about your waist? I pray that it is. I pray that the hope of the gospel. Gives all of us hope today and that we are all strengthened to engage this battle for the good of one another, our families and for God's glory so that we see his kingdom advance. And we stop. The enemy from coming and encroaching against us. Let us pray. Father. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope. That we have. In the gospel. I thank you that you have divinely equipped us. With all that we need. Now I pray God. That you would. Empower us. God that we would take full advantage of the full armor. That you've given us. And Lord that you would keep. Keep. Sinner in forefront this helmet of salvation reminding us that christ our savior has won the decisive victory and lord if there be anybody this morning who's not surrendered their life over to you i pray god that you would strengthen them to hear your call and to submit their lives to you confess you as lord to seek forgiveness of their sin to repent and to turn and to trust in you the one who can save us the only one Who can save us from the enemy's hand. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.